Hey there, I'm Grace. And I'm Amelia. And welcome to the Women Invest in Real Estate podcast, where we talk about getting started in real estate, scaling, and we give you the inside scoop about our day-to-days as full-time investors. Hey there, are you looking for those deep, real-life, in-person connections with fellow female investors and business owners? We're so excited to announce our next WIRE retreat, March 2nd through 5th in Salt Lake City, Utah. Our retreats are the highlight of our year. They're an intensive weekend spent talking all about big goals, strategizing, masterminding, and fun. Registration is now open on our website, and this will sell out quickly, so be sure to reserve your spot now. Visit womeninvestinrealestate.com slash SLC to sign up. Hey everybody, it's Amelia here. I just wanted to drop in a quick note before the episode starts and let you know that I mentioned a few times that you can find Natalie's download on our website, but it's actually just going to be linked in the show notes. So if you want access to that spreadsheet or that download, it's going to be in the show notes. So hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Women Invest in Real Estate podcast. We are excited to have Natalie Kaladi with us today to talk all about taxes, especially because it's almost year end. So we get to hear all of her expert advice on what the heck we should be doing to prepare for tax season. So I'm really excited because I've got a lot of notes to take. So Natalie, do you want to give us an introduction about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me for starters. But yeah, we're in tax time and I am an IRS enrolled agent and a real estate tax strategist. I've worked exclusively with real estate investors since 2014 and had my own firm since 2017. And I've invested in real estate in kind of a few weird ways since also about 2013, 2014. Just very specialized and love helping people get set up with the right strategies to kind of really work on building their wealth in the most effective way they can. Right off the bat, I want to make sure that after this episode, people know where they can reach you. So can you share your Instagram handle or if there's a better place to reach you, where is that at? Yeah, Instagram's kind of the best for me or the website, but I'm RE Tax Strategist on all socials. And then that's the website as well. It's just retaxstrategist.com. So we're pumped to dive in. This is going to be an amazing episode. I have a tax attorney boyfriend, but I don't utilize him nearly as much as I should. (laughs) Also, hearing it from a woman and someone that's not, that I'm not living with (laughs) 24-7, like, you know, it makes a difference. So I can't wait to get (laughs) into this episode. The first thing we want to cover, which I think a lot of people don't know about, and I've heard this briefly, it's how you can save on taxes by having your rental be a short-term rental temporarily before turning it into a long-term or midterm. Absolutely. So one of the key things with with normal rentals, with long-term rentals, or even midterms, they're in the same category for taxes, is that they're in a category called passive income to the government. And what that means is that you don't pay any payroll taxes on it, which is awesome, which is why as kind of a start, you know, if you make $100,000 from rental income versus W-2 income, you're going to save about 15% in tax right off the bat. But the kind of trade-off there is that when a passive activity like a rental creates a loss, you can't always use it. There's certain circumstances where you can and sometimes when you can't. And so typically, if your annual income is above $100,000, you might not be able to use that loss. It can always offset other passive income, but not your W-2s or other income types. It's in its own bucket, and that's a passive loss limit. And it doesn't, you don't lose it. It just carries forward to the next year. But short-term rentals are kind of this hybrid area where if you have a short-term rental, so a rental where the average stay is seven days or less, and if you materially participate in it, and I can um, send over a link to you to share to the podcast notes of what that kind of means, but it's basically just run it in some way, mm-hmm. um, then it can qualify as non-passive. And so by reaching that non-passive designation, any losses you create are no longer subject to that income limit. And there's not any kind of like cap on it. So with a short-term rental, you can do something like utilize a cost segregation where we push some of your depreciation up to the front end and have a big loss in one year and be able to fully deduct it against your earnings from your W-2 job or flipping income or any other types of income. So it's a really, really great loophole. And the nice part is there's no, there's no like clawback. So if you start with a property as a short-term rental, even if your plan is to have it be a midterm, which I think a lot of us switch to because we get burned out on short term. Definitely. <laughs> 
so you can start with it as a short term and just rent it that way for the first year, you know, even if you buy it mid year or whatever, and then the next year starting January, convert it over to a midterm. And you don't like have to pay back that big loss you got to take up front. Same if you start with it short term and then convert it to a long term furnished or a regular rental. So it's a great way to like tactically create a big deductible loss in one year and then kind of pivot a little bit into exactly what you'd like to use the property for. That's, That's the first time I've heard it explained well, because someone was telling me about this recently and it went right over my head. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's the trickiest part. I think with taxes and these podcasts, whenever I go to come on these, cause every this time of year, I feel like every podcast has tax people and it's all the same stuff. Everyone's like, how do I just pay less in taxes? But trying to sort of tie it together in a way that it makes sense and have it be tangible and not just a lot of people like to talk about these like big sexy strategies like this is how billionaires stay billionaires and we're over here like okay but I've got a house hack and what do I do with it? <laughs> so I try to sort of bring it to a obtainable level of taxes absolutely so is there a certain period of time that you have to do that for or is there a minimum length of time or is it just at all any time at all yeah so a lot of stuff in tax is based on intent so I would say and, but here's the tricky thing is we're filing based on a year basis and that test for it to be non-passive is an, a, a year-to-year test. So one year you can have a property that's non-passive and then the next year it could not be if you just aren't like if then you hand it off, it's fully managed, you're not involved anymore, it might not qualify. So it's looked at year to year. So if you bought a property, like I was just talking to a client this morning, a potential client, and she had just closed on a property and she was sort of right on the fence because the current tenants were moving out like literally December 31st and she was going to be relisting it as a short-term rental and I was like if there is any way you can get it listed before the end of the year like have it ready and in service have the ad up already even if it's not updated pictures yet um, having it in service this year with that listed as a short-term stay would qualify it so there's not sort of a hard and fast rule it's not like you have to do this for one year like if you bought a rental in November and you had one or two short-term guests stay there and then in January switched it over for the year of 2022 with November and December, it would qualify. And then for next year, it wouldn't because it's a year-to-year test. So just trying to get at least one guest in there with an average stay of under seven days and it should meet that qualification for the year. That's so cool. I think another to like tag on to this short-term rental train, one thing people don't realize and I don't even know the full extent of it, but can't you rent out your primary for 14 days or less and not be subject to tax on it? Yeah, the Augusta rule. So I love this. So if you, that's exactly it. If you rent your primary home out for under 14 days, you don't report anything. So you also don't get any of the write-offs, but you don't report any of the income. And so this can be done really strategically. And my favorite example of this is I grew up in central Oregon. And a few years ago, there was like a huge meteor shower there where local hotels were like canceling bookings they'd had for like months and months because now they could charge this crazy premium because of this natural event everyone was freaking out over. And anyone I knew with a house there, I was like, go stay with your parents for the weekend, like rent your house out for a thousand bucks a night because you'll get it. So if there's like a peak event by you, um, like uh, some kind of huge event, a sport event, whatever, sport event, you can tell I don't follow sports. <laughs> <'cause I'm all. laughs> yeah, exactly. If there's a sporting creation. Um, I love that. But if there's any high demand weekend by you or a week or anything like that, like, or if you're just traveling for two weeks and you're not going to be in your house, you know, lock your important stuff away, close off a room you don't want them having access to, and then you can mm-hmm. rent your house out for two weeks at a premium price point and it's completely tax-free money. So huge yeah. advantage. Yeah. I've thought about doing that on my primary residence and I completely forgot that it would be tax-free for 14 days. So now it's coming back to the top of my like mental list. Mm-hmm. It's one of those, too. <laughs> yeah. One of those big things I think a lot of people don't even consider, but if someone was like, Hey, here's a way that while you're on vacation, you could make Mm $10,000. People are like, Oh yeah, obviously sign me up for that. But we just, I think don't even think about it until. Yeah. At VPCon, I talked to somebody who had a house in Malibu and they would rent their house for like the two weeks to like rappers and they would film music videos there. I was like, wow, that would be a pretty penny tax-free. Yeah. And that's another thing I think people don't think about is if you don't want people staying at your house necessarily, I think it's called peer works, peer space, peer space. Peer space. Yeah. It's getting more and more popular too. And you can use Mm -hmm. the same rule there. So if you have one of those Pinterest kitchens, like by all means, rent it out to someone who wants to make YouTube videos about making cupcakes. And that is tax-free if you do it less than two weeks out of the year. 
So there's a lot of creative ways to get tax-free money in real estate. Yeah, I love that. Now I'm like, okay, I'm going to Hawaii in February. What do I need to do in my house to get it like rent ready for Airbnb? But okay, so that's really good advice. I love that. The next thing we want to go over, and this is really popular, is what is the most common tax savings item that you see overlooked when it comes to rental properties? Yeah, there's a few of them. And this is why it's so tricky, I think, when you're a new investor, because any CPA, any tax professional you go talk to, if you're like, hey, I have rentals, do you know how to do that? They're always going to be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. We do hundreds of rentals. And they're literally just going to take only what you give them and put it on a tax return. Like to them, they don't think of it like a business. They don't, they're not looking at it the same way you are. So the things I see over and over again that just like break my heart a little when I see them, the biggest one is if you do a renovation on a property. So like, say you bought something, maybe you're doing a burr, um, but you've put in like $50,000. When I see that as just a single line item, just like, so any big renovation you have to depreciate, which means it gets written off across multiple years. So when I see just that line for $50,000 renovation, I know that there's like a 95% chance that part of that was stuff that could have been broken out and written off over a shorter life or even expensed all at once. And great examples of that, these are like the top categories, but there's a category on real estate called land improvements. So this is landscaping, fences, driveways, retaining walls, sidewalks. So if you do any of those things, that has a 15 year life and anything with a life of less than 20 years to the IRS qualifies for something called bonus depreciation, where they basically say, "Uh, if you want to, we'll let you just write this all off at once. It's not going to be around long enough to deal with. So any of that land improvements qualifies. Other big ones are appliances, like kitchen appliances that qualify, flooring that's not nailed down. So most LVP carpet qualifies. So giving your accountant a breakout of your renovation and making sure they know what to do with it is key because if you did $50,000, probably almost guaranteed at least 10 of it is in one of those shorter categories and would result in a full write-off in this first year. So seeing a big line item for a renovation is just like a big red flag. That's I'm literally huge. writing down online. I, <laughs> I was like, so my pen. I was like, oh shit. <laughs> I gotta go look through my taxes now from last year. So, okay, here's my question though. Besides knowing like specifically what to look for, how do you make sure that your CPA is doing the best that they can for you and taking advantage of all these things? It's tricky because like I said, there's no proof. And it's funny because on these podcasts, like you'll see it on the online forums, a lot of people will say, how do I like find out if someone knows real estate? And one of the questions I tell people is, you know, ask them, if my short-term rental belongs on schedule C or E. And this is another thing we see done wrong a lot. And so this falls in this category too. If you have a short-term rental, it should almost never be on schedule C unless you're providing substantial services and it's under seven days. And that would be like a hotel, like offering daily room service, offering meals. And most people don't do that. And so if your accountant is putting your Airbnb there and it's just your standard Airbnb, all you do is clean it in between guests, it shouldn't be there. And when something is on schedule C, which is where you put business income, you pay that self-employment tax. So you're paying an extra 15% tax. So if you have a rental that is short-term and you're not kind of operating like a like a bed and breakfast, then ask your accountant why, because it probably shouldn't be there. And you can go back and amend up to three years and fix it and move it and get a refund if that's the case. But in terms of how to know, that's a question I like to ask is, you know, where, where does a short-term rental go? Ask if they know what a burr is. That's something that is just sort of like, yeah, because they just, if they don't know the basics of what a lot of investors are doing, how are they going to know how to account for it? But the kind of biggest thing is honestly, I'm in the process of working on an industry like a credential for a certified tax strategist for real estate so that anyone who's a licensed CPA or EA can add on sort of a focalized licensing credit education point to show that they know real estate just because there's so much, there's so much. <laughs> bad returns. Like there's so many mistakes on this topic because a lot of accountants, I think don't up until pretty recently clients who were like landlords, it was pretty like, uh, you know, they moved out, they kept the property. They haven't raised rent in 20 years. So I think a lot of accountants don't view it in a business sense, the way it Mm -hmm. is really picking up now. So that is a very necessary service or product or listing or that you said, like people are going to have a specific designation. So when, when is that going to be a thing? Like, is that coming out soon? Cause that's huge. Yeah. For next year, it's been a whole process. Cause I didn't want to make 
like there's all these courses for everything on the internet now, right? It's like $99, learn how to do this. No, this is gonna be something that gets you your annual education towards your license. It's gonna be like a full 40 hour course. So it's a pretty big undertaking and getting it certified through the industry backing standards. So hopefully <laughs> by the end of the year is sort of where we're at. That's the goal just because there needs to be something because it's so hard to know who actually knows the skills you mm -hmm. need when it comes to this. So how can an investor understand how what they should be looking for on their tax return or what yeah. what are common errors to look out for? Yeah, so the things I kind of tell people to look over and you guys can sit down and look over your prior year tax return right now. And if any of these things are there, bring it up with your accountant because accounting's weird. There's always one off. So that's why I hate definites when people are like, you have to do this to save on taxes or you have to see that like eh, maybe. But if any of these things show up, it warrants opening a conversation. Like I said, the one line item for renovations, that should warrant a conversation. If you don't have a land value on your depreciation schedule, so we only get to write off and depreciate the value of the building because a building is something that should wear out. Land just exists. We're, it's just floating rock. We're here on it forever. So mm -hmm. that doesn't wear out in theory. So if you see the amount being depreciated, as your full purchase price, no amount of that was separated out for land, then they're probably writing off too much, honestly, and incorrectly doing so. If it's a condo, that might be correct. That's why there's no definites. But even some condos have land value. So look for a land amount. Another kind of silly one that gets missed a lot is your fair rental days. If you look on your Schedule E, which is the schedule that reports your rentals on your 1040, there's a box at the top for fair rental days and personal use days. And that only comes into play like if you are renting your personal home for 14 days like we talked about like for that for tax purposes but lenders use that so when a lender's reviewing your tax return they're looking at a rental and if it says it was in service 365 which is the biggest mistake i see is either it's left blank or accounts just default to all year but you only owned it for three months it just looks like a crappy property <laughs> like it just looks like it made no money and then you have to sort of prove to them versus if they can see it is only something that was available and rented for 60 days, mm -hmm. it's gonna save you, you know, a week of back and forth email during underwriting. So making sure that that's correct isn't gonna change your tax situation, but like keep you from losing, you know, a rate you locked in on a loan because you don't have to prove something. So that's a big one. Uh, there's another one that I know of is that isn't only your principal tax, a tax write-off on your mortgage, not your interest, or maybe vice versa. I don't know. You know better than me, so you explain. <laughs> yeah, so that is one too. And this is one I actually just had a client's bookkeeper give them incorrectly. So even bookkeepers you got to look out for, <laughs> but it is only your interest. So only interest is a deductible expense because that's an actual expense to you. The principal is just paying down debt. So Reducing your own liability didn't cost you money. It's just you're trading having a liability for having more of an asset, kind of. So the principal payoff part is never deductible, but your interest is. It should come on your 1098 at the end of the year, and that's on the checklist. So making sure you have that amount correct. On the topic of interest, kind of a more advanced strategy, but something that gets overlooked very, very often is something called interest tracing. So we kind of touched on doing a bird deal and a lot of people do this, I think, where you, you know, fix up a property and then you refinance it or you pull a helix on it. Like that's one of our best ways to grow quickly in real estate is tapping into our equity. So if you take out more debt on a property, it's only deductible if that is used for a new business purpose. So if you refinance a house and use that $50,000 to buy a boat, that the interest related to that $50,000 of new debt isn't deductible. That was just for fun. If you take out that $50,000 and use it as a down payment on two new rentals, it is deductible but the interest gets deducted against those two new rentals. So you have to deduct your interest against where it was used, not necessarily the asset securing it. And ah, okay. I would say a lot of accountants miss this because <laughs> they just yeah. see your, your form for how much interest it is and they don't ask, but this happens a lot in real estate and you want to make sure, again, you have the interest to the right property for one, just being correct, but two lenders, they're going to look at it and be like, these two properties have no debt against them. And this one is maxed to the nines, like what's happening. And it's because it's not being traced to where it's actually, you know, what it was actually spent on. 
That's very interesting. I <laughs> Wow. I did not know that. That's so cool. What are red flags for the IRS that they're like looking out for on tax returns specific to real estate investors? Yeah, specific to real estate. So something that is not a red flag that we hear though is a home office. You'll hear this a lot. People say, <laughs> my CPA <laughs> told me not to take a home office. And that was true in like 1994 when we had dial up internet. But literally like 10 plus years ago, probably longer than that, the IRS said like, this is no longer a red flag to us. We understand people work from home sometimes now. So if you legitimately have a home office then it doesn't have to be a whole room, it's just a dedicated workspace. So it can't be like your kitchen table. But if you have a desk in your living room, just having a little area qualifies you. So if your accountant's telling you that's a red flag, that's a red flag about your accountant that they probably haven't like taken updated classes in the last 10 years. But things that are actually red flags. Real estate professional status, this is huge. So it in and of itself isn't, right? Like real estate professional status, that same limit we talked about earlier, where if you make too much money, you can't always deduct your rental losses in the same year. If you're a real estate professional, if this is your whole job, all of your rentals are now non-passive. So you don't have that limit. Everyone wants this status, but you have to spend 750 hours a year on real estate. And then also um, you have to spend more time on real estate than any other activity. So if you work a full-time job, that's like 2,080 hours a year. So saying you spend more time than that on your rentals, it's gonna be really hard to prove. So there's a lot of people who try to get really aggressive with that. Like I just saw a post recently where someone was like, I saw a YouTube where they said anyone can claim this. All you have to do is every day when you get off work, spend four hours on your rental and then all weekend you're just going to renovate on your rentals and you can easily hit 2080 hours and I'm like do you not eat or like sleep or grocery shop or like no one's actually doing that though so that is something that is I won't say like an audit risk but it is something heavily scrutinized because it's a huge tax benefit so mm -hmm. claim it if you qualify but I would say that's not the place to be like overly aggressive until you're pretty legitimately qualifying and the other things that they're looking at right now are cryptocurrency, which ties in a little bit. Some investors kind of look at both just because there was like a lot of people weren't reporting it pretty much because it isn't as standardized as like stocks or other investments. So it was on you to report. So that's something they're looking for. And taking a salary if you have an S-corp. This ties less into rentals. You don't want your rentals into an S-corp. But if you get into flipping or you're an agent, part of having an S-corp is taking a W-2 salary. And a lot of people don't. So that's something if you have an S-corp tax return for any reason and your accountant didn't explain this to you, you're not taking payroll, if it's not on your tax return, no amount of wages, that's something that they're looking at really heavily right now. So make sure that that gets corrected and you're taking a reasonable amount of salary. Cool. Kind of a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, there's some good tips in there. I love that. Okay, so now to get into what people can do now to prepare themselves for tax season coming right up. We're filming this in November of 2022, so this is right around the corner. I know you've created this amazing spreadsheet for us or this amazing download, so we're going to have that on our website if anyone is following along and doesn't have a pen and paper to take notes. But these are 10 action steps that you can take now to get ready for tax tax time. So Natalie, you want to walk us through the list? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll kind of stress this too, that a lot of people think having your taxes done is just like drop off a big pile of receipts and like pray and then just like whatever happens, happens. And like, yeah, okay. But the more, like the longer it takes your accountant to unravel those receipts, like you get charged based on time. So being organized and having this information together for them is going to one, keep you from being just like totally in the dark about where things are, but also it's gonna save you money is ultimately what it comes down to. Like there's people who would just drop off their mail with their bank statements to their like accountant and like you're now paying someone $300 an hour to open your mail. So yeah. having these things together is going to definitely cut down on that cost. Specific to real estates, the big things you wanna get together are your form 1098s. These are what the bank will send you each year that shows the amount of mortgage interest you paid. If you have a commercial loan, they won't. Commercial loans don't always send these and you'll have to log in online and print just like a year end statement or something to show your accountant. Your 1098s also sometimes have real estate taxes on there if you paid it out of escrow because then the bank has that number. But if you don't, if you pay it on your own, you'll need to separately give your accountant that number. So have that like your tax bill you got in the mail or go to the county website and print it. But if it's not on your 1098, they'll need that. And also same with insurance. Like sometimes it's on the 1098 if it was paid through escrow, but if it wasn't, and if you don't see it on the form, you'll need to give them 
the amount. So that's a big one, gathering all those together and having your stuff clearly kind of labeled and organized. This sounds pretty straightforward, but like I was saying earlier with like that interest tracing. So if you have a loan and a HELOC on the same property, but you know that HELOC actually was used to buy a whole different property, you have to like label it as such because to your accountant, they both just look like property A. There's nothing on there telling them it was spent on a different property. So having just kind of a note on there or something for them. Really quick, I want to stop you because I am currently using Stessa to track all of my expenses, but at this point... It's gotten to be too much, I think, for Stessa to handle. So I'm switching to, and also my boyfriend hates me at the end of the year because I give him like this Stessa and he's just like, what the fuck is this? Like, I can't. What is like the platform that you would recommend? Because I believe I'm making the switch to QuickBooks in 2023. Do you feel like that's a good like platform for that? Yeah, my starting point when it comes to, because I get asked this a lot, like, what should I use? And I typically tell people as sort of a starting point that like bookkeeping is kind of like like an exercise and fitness regimen. It's whatever one you'll actually do. So there might be one that's better, but if you're never going to do it, it doesn't help anyone. So Stessa is actually where I send new investors because I think it is less overwhelming than QuickBooks. QuickBooks is full double entry accounting, which is great as you're getting bigger and it's needed. If you have any kind of partnerships or an S Corp, anything with a, a separate tax return, you really need a balance sheet. You really need QuickBooks. But QuickBooks is also really, it's not made for real estate. And so a lot of the like transactions you have to put in there, you kind of have to manually enter them. It's less like, it's less smart about it. doesn't know what you're trying to do. So it makes it kind of easy to mess stuff up. And QuickBooks is like, well, if they're putting this in manually, they must know what they're doing. And then at the end of the year, your accountant gets it and they're like, what, what the hell happened? Because there was no like check and balance system. <laughs> so if you're brand new, I would use Stessa. Like if you're just a couple rentals in, awesome. QuickBooks as you get bigger, but with some kind of like oversight is always my caveat. Even if it's a bookkeeper, like if you really want to do it yourself, but once a quarter have a bookkeeper who like looks over it, lets you know if something's wrong so that you then know going forward and they can kind of help you clean it up because there's nothing worse than end of the year. And everyone tries to buy stuff at the end of the year. So it's like, you're trying to do your taxes and you're like harping on your account because you're like, I need these to close on a loan in two weeks. And then we open the QuickBooks. And if it's a disaster in there, you want to nip that in the bud before you have a whole year worth of stuff sideways. Yeah. You're on track, either of those two. Yeah, your boyfriend, that is exactly most accountants. Like QuickBooks is sort of the standard and we don't like change. Like we're like a crotchety, we're yeah. set in our ways. You don't want to learn a whole new system. But stuff is not bad at all. It's just yeah. you do outgrow it. For yeah. sure. I'm um, using QuickBooks right now and... The biggest tip I would say is I waited too long to start using a powerful tool. I was doing it in Excel. And then all of a sudden I had 19 units, 10 are midterm, two are short-term. There's long-term different entities. I bought them in different ways, some creatively, some cash, some loans. And it has been like six months of me trying to backtrack all of my books So my biggest piece of advice is hire it out before like the bookkeeper Mm -hmm. before you think you need it because there's so much like foundational work they have to do to set up like all of your accounts and just things that I don't understand. And I, that is the biggest mistake I've made in my investing career so far is I just got way too behind and it's been a shit storm. (laughs) It's been a shit storm. Yeah. I was like... (laughs) Yeah, it's so tricky too. And the other part that is kind of hard, I think, with that transition too, is like in your spreadsheet, I think a lot of people start that way and it sort of works. But I actually, I stopped taking on clients who were using spreadsheets and like, I won't just like shun you and tell you to go away, but like, we're going to put you onto a system. Like, I don't even do bookkeeping. Like I have no horse in this race. I am not making money from that, but it is because of that. Like my value is advising on your taxes. And so you hear about the like one of the biggest benefits of real estate being the tax and so people come to me and they're like i wanted like i wanted advising i want strategy like i want to do all these sexy things i hear about but if your numbers are sort of just like willy-nilly in a spreadsheet and we're actually just like ballparking it you're too we're, we're not there yet I, you know mm-hmm. you can't have that and so getting set up in a system is what lets you have numbers available for your lender for your accountant for anyone like if you're going to JB with someone on a deal and they want to see what the information is like it's so important but then the tricky part is what you need to track as an investor isn't always what your accountant needs for taxes so make sure you're kind of both talking about that because you got to find something that works for both and it might be sort of different sets of reports or something like that but the metrics that are important on the investing side don't always tie into taxes 
So you might be more concerned with like cash flow. So you might want your books on more of a cash basis where like things like depreciation aren't really tied into that because you just really want to know what you're going to have in the bank account. And so kind of figuring all of that out takes a little bit of time too. And that ties into it, but it'll be so helpful after when you have a good system. Okay, cool. So number one was 1098 forms. Okay, Mm -hmm. that now (laughs) number two. Number two is when you buy a new rental, there's a handful of things you should always give your accountant, just like on default, because I can't tell you, I've had more than once where like, and like now I have systems in place, but when I worked for CPA firms and we kind of didn't, like you'd be done with a return and at the end they'd be like, oh, and I picked up a rental this year. Does that matter? And you'd be like, Wait, hell yeah, it does matter. <laughs> like how would I have known that? You didn't send me anything. I've also had people not tell me about a baby and a divorce. So like tell your accountants when big things happen. <laughs> like Facebook has made it better, but like I shouldn't have to stalk my clients. <gasps> But when you buy a new rental, your accountant is always going to need your purchase documents. And this isn't, we don't need your whole contract. We need, it's either like a HUD or an Alta statement is what it's typically called. It's that two column sheet that breaks out like the buying expenses and the seller's expenses. And this is different than the CD. Your closing disclosure is for your loan. Your HUD or Alta is what's actually happening at like title at closing. And it's the actual full legal transaction amounts. And they're different. Like your CD is going to not have all of the necessary costs. It's only things directly tied to your loan. So make sure they have the HUD or Alta statement. Also, if you have an appraisal done when you purchased, send them that as well. And if they don't know what to do with it, that's kind of a red flag too. We touched on depreciation and how it's everyone loves that in real estate because what it's letting you do basically is you can have a cash flowing property but after depreciation which is just an on paper write-off you didn't actually write a check for it so like on your tax return you can show a loss but have like be net positive in the bank so you'll have cash in hand at end of year but then you get this extra like bonus write-off so we want to maximize that and when you buy a property like i said you can't appreciate the land and the way we figure out the split between value is either based on what the county assessor says that percentage ratio is or your appraisal those are like the two top ways and a lot of accountants just look at the county and that's fine it's not wrong per se but if the account if the county is telling you that you know $70,000 worth of your purchase is building but then the appraisal backs up that $100,000 is building you want to use the one that's better you want that higher write off so always send them the appraisal and ask them to look at both and they should be looking at both just to get you whatever's higher And then another thing I see missed a lot is all of your pre-purchase costs. So a lot of these don't end up on that purchase document. So if you spent money on inspections and appraisals, even if it was on a different house, like if you were trying to buy a rental and you put in offers on three properties before it in the same location, like not like literally the same, like in the same city, you put in offers on three different properties, you got to the inspection phase on a couple, like one, the seller put whatever happened, but you incurred a few thousand dollars of costs on other properties before you actually got to close. All of that can get rolled into the price of the property you bought. To the IRS, all of your costs it takes to get an asset are what it costs, not just the purchase price. Mm -hmm. So keep track of all of that, but don't put it, this is, so this is another tricky thing with like, but I want to put it in my QuickBooks or my Stessa. I would say keep this separate because it's not part of that annual reporting. It's part of that cost of buying it. So I would say almost just have that in a little spreadsheet that goes with the like purchase document. Like I bought it for this amount. Here's the other cost it took to buy it. Here you go. So keep track of all those costs to acquire a property. This document is amazing. I just want to stop right. <laughs> if you are listening to this episode, you need to download it. It's got all of Natalie's like contact info and her website too. So, well, it's got her website. You can get to her there. Yeah. Um, so yeah. definitely download this. This is amazing. Awesome. Thank you. I'm glad you find it. I was like, I should put this into words because I feel like I'm always saying this, but like it's a lot to kind of keep track of. The third one, like we were just talking about profit and loss for each property. This is big. It sounds straightforward, but sometimes you get sort of things multiple places or you're sending them, you know, the, like a lot of people will get a 1099 from your property manager. Well, if they're managing 10 of your properties, that's going to be the total for all of them. And your accountant still needs to know how much rents were for each property. So having an actual profit and loss for each specific rental is really important. And people will ask if you need to track multiple units separately. Generally, no is kind of the feedback there, but unless there's a reason to. Like if you have one short term and one long term in a duplex, you might want to keep track of them as two separate like profit and loss statements. But as a whole, it gets reported for 
that actual whole property. Number four, I kind of touched on this earlier, a breakdown of any renovations that occur before you put the property in service. Um, same thing here, we don't want it on one line item. So I'll kind of say it again. So if people missed it the first time, the big ticket items to break apart out of a renovation to give your accountant is a total for kitchen appliances. Those are always five years, so they can get written off all in one year. Any flooring that's not attached is a big one. So carpet LVP, window coverings, so your blinds and all of that. Paint. Paint can always be written off and it gets rolled into renovations a lot. And then land improvements. So any landscaping, fencing, decking, driveways, pavers, all of that good stuff. So definitely as sort of a starting point, break out the cost for those sort of projects. And when it comes to accounting, the cost for something is the total for both the materials and labor. So make sure you give them that kind of combined, like here's how much it cost all in for the trees and someone to plant them, not separate. And this kind of ties into this too. So you'll want to give your accountant invoices for any repairs or renovations that are over $2,500. Why? There is something called the de minimis safe harbor. It's basically the IRS said if something costs less than $2,500, we don't care. Like it's too small, just write it off, whatever. So if something's under $2,500, you can just write it off. If it's bigger than that, your accountant kind of needs to know what it is because we need that detail. If you just give me, if your profit and loss says electric, $10,000, I'm gonna assume I have to capitalize it. We have to write it off over several years. But if that $10,000 was actually like completely unrelated little things, they might actually be under this $2,500 limit. Like if one line item looks like a $10,000, like that could have been rewiring a whole house, or it could have been like you installed some decorative lighting outside and you put in a new breaker panel and just like a bunch of unrelated things. So giving your accountant that detail on what big costs are made up of gives you a better chance of writing off more of them. This $2,500 limit thing that comes into play once the rentals in service. So once it's like ready and available for rent, so all of your costs to get a property ready, you can't break them apart. This is a once you're, once you're going in in business situation. By invoice, do you mean like a receipt? Like you need a receipt proof? So kind of, typically for those big ones, it's more like what a contractor would send to you. So if they send you like a scope of work, and this is another reason I, and this is kind of a constant battle because a contractor wants to just give you like the full scope and a total for the project. And I'm over here being like, but how much were the floors? Yeah. <laughs> like, tell me though. So trying to find a happy medium, even if they can give you sort of a, a pretty close breakout on what the costs are per project is really what you need. So it won't typically come into play with a receipt unless it is something like you installed a new HVAC or something like one big ticket item might be on a receipt. But normally when it's one of those bigger dollar things, it's something on a, like you have more back. We just need some kind of backing documentation showing what that amount was because without it, we're going to assume it's a something we have to capitalize and write off over a bunch of years. Just more details. A summary for each rental. These are things Again, the more back and forth you have to have with your accountant, a lot of accountants still charge based on time, kind of like an attorney. So you don't want to spend an hour of emails back and forth to do your taxes. Like the more you can give them without needing further clarification, it's going to save you money. So these are things that need to be circled back on and asked for often that you can just provide up front. The date your rental was first in service, and that is the date it was first ready and available for rent. Some people will say the date it was advertised, but that's not like a hard and dry rule or hard and fast, cut and dry. You can't like advertise it January 1st if you're about to start a renovation that's going to take nine months and be like, hey, coming later, this property. It has to be within a reasonable turnover time, so like maybe six weeks-ish, but also like certificates of occupancy. If you were in the middle of a big rental, when you get that sign off that someone can live in it, things like that, just whenever you could like market it and have someone move in in a reasonable amount of time. So giving that date to your accountant is important because there's sometimes where, you know, we have the purchase documents that says you bought a rental on January 1st, but if it wasn't like ready to rent until December, that's much different. So you got to give them that date. Again, short-term rentals, meeting that loophole for it to be non-passive, your average guest stay needs to be seven days or less. So providing them that information up front, how long were your average guests there? So even if you have some really long stays, as long as you also have some short ones, just the average of your stays needs to be under seven days. And then how many days you personally use the property during the year. So if it's like an Airbnb, but you stay there, this is sort of the flip side of that same law where you can rent your personal home to someone else for 14 days tax-free. You can use your vacation home for 14 days tax-free. If you hit day 15, we have to sort of split up the costs between business and personal, and it makes part of the cost no longer deductible because it's you used it for personal use. So just giving your accountant those things up front is going to probably save a bunch of time. 
A lot is going on in my head right now. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to compartmentalize all of it. Like, okay, here's what I need to do. Like, oh my gosh. I know. Well, it is it is a lot. <laughs> and we kind of talked about this earlier, but your interest, oh no, I'm sorry, your insurance and your taxes, if they're not on your 1098. So it's one of those things where if you, this is kind of a great starting point, is if you look, you can look online on the IRS website, just type in Schedule E and look at the categories of expenses it lists there. The ones that almost every rental should have, though, are interest, taxes, insurance. You're probably going to have all three of those. You won't have interest if there's no loan. But if you've sort of compiled your expenses for the year and you don't have taxes or insurance on there and you send it to your accountant, well, they don't have taxes or insurance either. So if you sort of look for these like expected things to start, it's going to save you an email later and get you your taxes quicker. So would you recommend just, because all of my loans are commercial loans, except for maybe one. So I don't get the 1098, like you said, mm-hmm. and I pay all my property taxes on my own and insurance on my own. So would you say that like an Excel spreadsheet would be just like good enough to provide all that info per property? Yeah. They So another kind of thing to be mindful of is it's not your tax professional's job to audit you. It is their job to kind of trust your numbers as long as they're reasonable. So if you give them a spreadsheet or if like you made that payment out of a bank account that's connected to your Stessa or your QuickBooks, it should be on there. So as long as it's correctly allocated to whatever property it goes to, as long as they can see like, yep, this is a property tax payment and it is to 123 Main Street, that should be all they need. Now, if the amount of the property taxes is like $74,000, they might be like, "Mm, that's probably wrong. And they'll ask about it. And then they'll maybe want proof because like sometimes it's a typo or, you know, it was a miscalculated expense or put in the wrong place. But otherwise, they shouldn't need like the printout from the website. This is actually one of those things I think people think they're being helpful by being like, I'm going to give them my profit and loss and then also a receipt and an invoice for everything on it but it almost never matches. It's like (laughs) if something's off by a few dollars because you forgot the $8 fee you paid to process your online tax payment to the county, now your accountant has to email you to be like, hey, your receipt is a different total than your report, which is correct. So anytime you can just like simplify and have it on there and they shouldn't need the backup unless there's a reason, like you need to prove something big or something's weird, like I said, like it's way too high or missing. So I would say it should pull into your, like your QuickBooks, it should kind of be in there if you're paying it out of your business account. 1099s, this is a weird one because the rule changed kind of recently, but landlords didn't used to have to send 1099s to people. So this is another thing where accountants, especially if they've been doing this a really long time, are like, oh no, you don't have to do that. But a few years ago with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they released a new deduction called the QBI deduction, Qualified Business Income or 199A deduction. And it's 20% of any net income, net business income. And a rental can qualify in most cases. There's a safe harbor, but the way the code reads is just a regular and continuous like intent of profit. So as long as you're actually trying to make money with this rental, it's not like, oh, I inherited this house and I just let my cousin crash there and he pays me in course. Like that probably doesn't count, but (laughs) any property you like bought to be a rental should count. But again, it's a business deduction. So now you have to meet the criteria of a business. And part of that requirement is sending a 1099 to anyone you paid more than $600 to during the year. That is anyone who's not a corporation. If there is an S corp or a C corp, they don't need one. But if you paid a handyman or anything like that, you'll want to issue a 1099. These are kind of required. Same thing for like the home office deduction. We're making the same claim. You're using your home for business use. You got to now walk and quack like a duck if you're going to say you're a duck. So having that 1099 information together for year end and kind of being aware of having to do that. Those are due by January, I think 15th and anyone over $600. So kind of to be mindful of. A tip is just have them sign it before you pay them. (laughs) So you don't have to try to remember at the end of the year. Yeah. Contractors love tax evasion. (laughs) Not all, but boy, a lot of them like to not report income. And so if you should be 1099ing them, but they're now like dodging you, but they've done the work and it's after the fact, there's a box on your, on your tax return that says like, did you, like, should you have issued anyone 1099s and did you? And if you have to be like, well, nope, because I couldn't, there can be some repercussions. So you want to try to make sure to do things as lined up as possible, get that W-9 signed from them in the start and make sure you have their information. Yeah. And a W-9 is going to have like their EIN or their social if they're not a business LLC if they're just operating under their name. And then a form for a 1099. And I think Grace and I both realized this last year when we were doing taxes, it's like a you buy a packet of them 
where there's like three carbon copies, you can't just like print them off the internet. Like this is a packet you have to go and buy and fill out. Yeah. So that this is why I don't do 1099s for my client because it is you have to buy this like it's like from the 60s like it's made to be used on a typewriter. What I recommend is there's a few websites, but e-file for biz is the one that I kind of find the easiest to use and they literally just charge you like four dollars for each 1099 and they can generate those three copies so I just do that now because the forms are and you have to buy them in a pack of like 50 like now you have Mm -hmm. forms for the next 10 years of your life like there's no smaller option well and they're only good for that year like yeah. I bought a packet of 10 from Office Max and I think it was like 35 bucks yeah, it's not or cheap. something. So it's, yeah, it's not cheap. And just FYI, if you're like online, like trying to print them off, like that's mm-hmm. not actually right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would look at a website that can just process it for you. Honestly, even though now you can't do it directly, like from QuickBooks, you have to put the information in. I think it tends to be quicker and cleaner because it is a, it is a huge headache to get the forms and get them printed and get them sent out to the three different places they have to go. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Grace, I know you use Gusto to play or Gusto, whatever, to pay your property manager because she's a W-2. They will send out 1099s. You can pay them to do like 1099 stuff. So oh, just FYI. Amazing. I saw you I saw you write down that website that Natalie mentioned and I'm <laughs> like, oh, you can actually just use Gusto. So you're good. You already have something. <laughs> Last couple things on the list. Um, A summary of helpful information. And I know that sounds like, yeah, done, Adley, this isn't groundbreaking. But again, anything you can avoid sort of a back and forth on. And one of my, like most, like things I run into most often that I think people don't think about is I'll have clients who name all of their properties, especially with short-term rentals, right? So like this is Cabin on the Lake. This is Pelican Brief. This is, Mm -hmm. but then they don't tell me what that is. So now I'm just like trying to figure out and it's one thing if it's like your property is on Gulf Shores Drive and it's called Gulf Shore Cabin like okay, but if you want to nickname all of your properties and that's how everything in QuickBooks is that's how they're all listed that's what everything is like reported as you need just a cheat sheet you got to send your accountant something so we know which property is what nickname and be mindful of that so accountants like if they're like to you these are your 10 properties but I've looked at you know, 12,000 rental houses this year. So I'm not going to probably remember offhand what is what. So just having a reference on them, like even if you jot a note on the 1098 or put a sticky note on it before, if you scan it to your accountant, or if it's a PDF, just like add a comment on the PDF, but just something to give them any extra information like that is huge. Because again, especially if like you're in a rush because you're trying to get lending, the more back and forth you can eliminate the better. I actually was just talking to an accountant friend who's planning to charge a fee going forward for she's calling it like second and third touches almost because it's pretty often that we'll basically like do a return and have to redo a big part of it because an accountant's like oh by the or a client's like oh you know here's a bunch more stuff I found here's more stuff so like you have to get it together get it labeled the less back and forth the quicker you're going to have your taxes and the more accurate they're going to be like so huge time saving there anything like that that you think would be helpful for them if it's There's just all kinds of weird situations that come up that like you know about. You're like, oh, you know, this only shows this many days of rental because my cousin from out of town did live in it for a month or what just anything, Mm -hmm. any any of those notes, put it together for him. Essentially what you're saying is be proactive. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like send him a whole little story, but it's just so much better than it's a little better. The way I work with clients is really proactive. Like I meet with my clients throughout the year. And that's kind of the difference between a tax planner or a tax strategist and just like a a tax preparer is at a normal accounting firm. If you're just dropping your stuff off at your end, now they're sort of trying to unravel what happened in the past year. They're looking at documents and trying to build a story off of them, essentially, versus if you just gave them the story, (laughs) like just tell them what happened. So we're not playing Where's Waldo to try to figure out what happened with which form. And yeah, and the last thing is kind of duplicate information. This is sort of that same thing of being proactive, the more efficiently you have your taxes together for your accountant, the better for both sides. But it's that little thing, like I said, it's pretty often where we'll get stuff where the what should be the same figure, like if you are telling me your repairs amount was this amount on your profit and loss, but then you give me, oh, this is a good one. So like, if you have $1,200 for repairs on your profit and loss, and then separately also send me invoices, but those invoices equal $1,895. I do not know if that $1,200 is part of this. Is this a $1,200 repair and also $1,895? So it's kind of clarifying things like that. Um, same thing, you can put a note on the PDF saying, you know, this $1,200 repair was just 
a whole new fridge we installed unrelated to the invoices. Like just having those clarifying notes to avoid that back and forth from the start will save a ton of time and ultimately save you money on your taxes. So those are kind of the big things I think people don't think about and don't think to get together, but doing it now while you're just like chilling at home filled with pie next week is gonna be much less stressful than trying to like figure that out in April. Wow, I've got a lot to do. (laughs) (laughs) This is awesome. So we've said it twice already, but this sheet is amazing. It's very in-depth. It'll be on our website. And Natalie's website is on the bottom left. I'm sure people are going to be listening, wanting to know, you know, how can they hire you? How can they work with you? Do you want to give us a short blurb on how to do that? So there's a few different ways. I actually have kind of two different services available. And I just started doing this because I'm very real estate specialized. And so I tend to work with kind of really in-depth clients at this point where they want to work together on a really proactive ongoing basis, a lot of tax planning. So if you are looking to be kind of a full scope client, then the like tax prep, my firm website is colotax.com. And that's where you just want us to do all of it. If you, this is what I just started offering is just tax and real estate, like advising services, because a lot of people have an accountant they've used for years and they love them. Like you might be working with someone already who you think is great, but they don't know real estate really well. And you're like, I want to keep working with Susan. Susan's awesome. But Susan doesn't understand what I'm doing. Then I have an advisory service where I'll kind of work collaboratively with your accountant. They can still file your taxes, but I'll sort of work out a tax plan for you and point out like these big picture things and review the return before it's filed. But just so that you can keep that relationship going, maybe you have a like a main business already. Like you might have a self-employed business that they've been handling for years. You should always work with whoever's sort of your best fit for your biggest need. Mm-hmm. But this allows you to have that make sure you have the correct information and strategy portion as well. And that's the retaxstrategist.com is the website that has just the kind of advising packages and um, things like that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was super helpful. I feel like you explained everything so well, makes things click into place. And like I said, I've got my work cut out for me. (laughs) Perfect. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm following around. So if anyone has questions, shoot them my way and I'm happy to provide feedback or anything like that. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you loved today's episode, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to check us out and join our community at womeninvestinrealestate.com and follow us on Instagram at wirewithtwoeyes.community.